0: Hello, everyone. I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Laurel Corona, the author of The Mapmaker's Daughter, a novel about the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. The novel opens in Sevilla and is told from the perspective of Amalia, then a six-year-old girl. Amalia is the daughter of Conversos, a Jewish family that has... Hello, everyone. I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Laurel Corona, the author of The Mapmaker's Daughter, a novel about the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. The novel opens in Sevilla and is told from the perspective of Amalia, then a six-year-old girl. Amalia is the daughter of Conversos, a Jewish family that has converted to Christianity to avoid trouble with the Spanish government, and as soon becomes clear her mother has not identified with the new religion. Sevilla, 1432. I hold my hands up for my mother's inspection. They're not dirty enough, Amalia, she says. pinching off a burnt candle wick, she smears the black powder around my nails. There, she says, that's better. Little daylight remains on this tawny afternoon as she hands me an empty basket small enough for my six-year-old arm to carry. You know what to do, and you better hurry. She shuts the door behind me, and I start up the narrow street on the edge of Sevilla, stopping in the apothecary's doorway to smell the scented air. The owner sets down her pestle. Wait a minute, she says, breaking off a sprig of rosemary, which she tucks behind my ear to protect me from the evil eye. Farther up the street, the air reeks from the greengrocer's fly-ridden pile of rotting vegetables and spoiled fruit, and I hold the rosemary to my nose, breathing hard through it to cover the smell as I turn the corner toward the butcher shop. A severed pig's head looks out into the street with an oddly cheerful grin. The butcher wipes bloody fingers on his apron as he turns to serve me. Two pork sausages and a few scraps of ham for soup,' I tell him, "'remembering to make sure he sees that as Friday sundown approaches "'my hands are still filthy. "'Soon the houses give way to a rocky field. "'The wildflowers reach my waist as I go down a narrow path "'of bent and broken stalks. "'Just before I reach a stand of poplars, "'I take the meat from my basket, "'noting with disdain the mosaic of white fat and pink flesh, "'as I fling it all as far as I can into the tall grass.' Spreading my fingers to avoid the feel of the grease, I make my way through the trees to the edge of a small pool. From time to time, someone must come here, or there wouldn't be a path, but it is easier to get water from the pumps in the squares than from the springs around Sevilla. In warm weather, my mother brings me with her to stand guard while she immerses the way she is supposed to after the blood stops flowing from between her legs each month, and I think of it as our private place. A frog splays his legs as he crosses the pool. Don't be afraid, little fellow, I say, as I crouch to rinse my hands of the grease. Mayim hayim, my mother calls this pool, living water, though it makes my fingers look as pale as the dead. Baruch Adonai, I whisper, Eloheinu melech halom, After blessing the Holy One, I add the words for the ritual of washing hands, watching the swirls of water disturb the grass on the edges of the pool. Bet al netavat yadayim. When my hands are so clean they squeak, I've splashed water on my face to come home looking fresh for Shabbat. I imagine the sausage hidden in the grass, and since there is no blessing for throwing forbidden meat away, I whisper the words I often hear my mother say, please accept that we honor you the best we can. I stand for a moment in silence before picking up my basket to head for home. And now, please join me in welcoming Laurel Corona. Hi, Laurel. Hi. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to do so.
0: As I always do, let's begin with you. Uh, the Matmaker's Daughter is, from what I see on your website, your fourth historical novel, or at least your fourth published historical novel. Um, the other three, Finding Emily, Emily uh, Penelope's Daughter, and The Four Seasons, deal with quite different times and places. So please give us a sense both of how you got into historical fiction and why you chose something about the novels and why you chose these particular subjects.
1: Well, I started, uh, actually writing nonfiction. My first published book for adults. I, I started as writing young adult books for Libraries, mostly on countries and a few other things, and I had a chance to write a nonfiction book in partnership with a man whose parents were Holocaust survivors, and he wanted to have their story told. They were active in a resistance movement in Lithuania, and and I thought that the story of Jews who fought back is really largely undertold. So I wanted to write that book with him. But I found as I was writing that that nonfiction book that it was so frustrating to write nonfiction because you know I thought that I. Could pretty well imagine what their lives might have been like and, and imagine what they might have said in some situation or what they might have been feeling. But when you're writing nonfiction, you really can't speculate or you really can't use your imagination in that way. I was writing this right around the time that James Frey was getting in really big trouble for uh, with Oprah for for his book in which he embellished greatly. And, and so as I was writing this, I, I was having so much fun writing the book that I knew that I wanted to continue to write, but it was really clear to me that I did not want to write nonfiction. So I'm a professor of humanities, or I was until I retired in May, and and I just found it so frustrating in my books that there was so little information about women, and and I knew that women had to be playing a larger role than it seemed like they were playing. And so my my ears and my eyes would perk up when I would see any references to women, and I found as I was writing uh, until our last breath, which is my Holocaust book which came out from St. Martin's in 2008 that I I also found in a humanities book a reference to Vivaldi and how he had been, he had worked with an orchestra of female orphan musicians in Venice. And it was just a throwaway line in this book. But I mean, female orphan and musician don't end up in the same sentence very often. And, and so I thought, uh, that sounds pretty interesting. So I started looking into this and realized there was this amazing story there about this institution that took in, uh, babe, abandoned babies and, and raised them to be productive citizens of the Venetian Republic, including making them musically literate. And uh, it's really too long a story to go into here, but by the time Vivaldi comes on the scene, this cloister of abandoned baby girls has become one of the great orchestras and choirs of Europe. And and they enable Vivaldi to have what he needs to become the composer that we know him to be today. He really would not be one of the great composers if it hadn't been for these women. And I, I knew that as a result of having researched from my humanities book, and then when I'm sitting there at my desk, I really actually can still visualize this. I'm sitting at my computer finishing up this Holocaust book and thinking, what am I going to do next? And it was like these girls and women of the of this institution, the Pieta, just sort of jump on me and say, write about us, write about us. So so I thought, and I knew I would want it to be a novel because I wanted to be able to imagine the story. So so I just thought, well, I'll give this historical fiction thing a try. So. That's how that's how I I got into it.
0: So had you written fiction before this?
1: Not really. I mean, I'd written, I guess everybody who becomes an author does starter novels, I guess you could say. I had played around with writing fiction before, but I'd never really been serious about it, and I'd never really tried to be published. I think for me, what what really tipped it in, in favor of putting a lot of effort into this is I am a professor, and, and so I'm always interested in teaching things, and so and I love to write. So this is this perfect combination because i'm writing something that's teaching people something so it just seems so worthwhile that that i want people to know about um about the subjects that i'm writing about and i want people to know about the women that i'm writing about so it's just very very gratifying to know that i've i've educated people about about something within the context of a of what i hope is is a riveting story
0: yeah, that's very interesting to hear you say. I'm a historian uh, by training, and I have the same reaction to my books, partly because I specialize in a very um, arcane sort of sub-discipline. I, my field is 16th century Russia, and I do textual history within that because there's a lot of argument as to which sources are reliable and which aren't. And so it's exactly right. the kind of thing that if you tell people about it at cocktail parties, even they're falling asleep over their drinks, you know. But um, but I so I, wanted to get past that because the field itself. I mean, this is the time of Ivan the Terrible. is fascinating.
1: Yes, yes, and so and and I think that that um, one of the things that that is is really essential to me, and that I always talk about when I talk to people is that when it comes to women's histories, we don't have enough facts, and we're we're never going to have enough facts because their stories just weren't considered important enough to record. And so if we're going to have really rich stories about women in the past, we're going to have to imagine those stories into existence. So I understand completely what you're talking about, that if you want to tell a really good story about that time with female characters, you're going to have to let your imagination loose. And so I think historical fiction, in many respects, is really is the second arm of the story of women's history. We've got our scholars and historians who can give us some of it. And then the I think it's people who work with the imagination who are going to give us the rest
0: well i I absolutely agree with you in part because if you look at the surface of women's history it's so you know women appear to occupy this very powerless um position and yet if you've actually talked with with women who you know nowadays live in traditional cultures you see that the It's a much more complex situation that you cannot capture from the documents, but you can imagine it based on the people that you know.
1: Yes, and the more that I get into it, the more I, I think that women have really been sold a bill of goods about what our role in history has been. I think we've kind of blindly and complacently accepted the idea that we stayed home and darned socks and, and cooked gruel and, uh, had too many babies and, and, uh, you know, watched the people around us die of plague and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And I know that all those things are, are true and, uh, to a certain extent and that yes, indeed that, those roles were part of women's lives, but the more research I do, the more I know that know for a fact that there were always women who were breaking that mold. There were always women who were going off to war. There were always women who were running away from home. There were always women who were standing up when, when they needed to be counted, who were moral leaders and, uh, and spiritual leaders and even military leaders and things like that. And I think that it's not, it, it isn't good for, for women today and for our daughters, uh, and, and granddaughters to be, um, still buying into this idea that women really haven't been very important because I think it really sends the wrong message to them about, who we really are fundamentally. And I think the more stories that we can have about that, about women who broke that mold, the better.
0: So tell me a little bit about where finding Emily and Penelope's daughter fit into this quest.
1: Well, my my big quest is that I want to find um, I I want to bring into the present and bring into people's consciousness the, the the lost women of history. And so my novels are always about women that have been their stories have either been lost entirely or their their stories have been misunderstood or. Misrepresented or just women that we ought to give an either a first look at if we've never heard at, of them or another look at and see if there's another way to tell their story. So sometimes I write about real women and sometimes I well, I'm, I'm always writing about real women, but sometimes, um, the only reason that I know that they're real is because we know that they lived. We know that so and so had a wife. We, we don't know anything about her, but she's real, even though we don't have any facts about her. And then other times, like in the case of finding Emily, it was taking, Uh, a a very real and actually quite well documented uh, woman who was a brilliant mathematician and physicist before the French Revolution who's known, if anybody knows her at all, as being Voltaire's lover for a number of years and finding her story and realizing that this is truly one of the most amazing people of her time, not women of her time, but people of her time and one of the really great stories of of women's history. I just thought, you know, it's just a crime that people have never heard of her. She is very important as scientist. And she's very important as a counterpoint to all of the, um, you know, the, the, uh, sort of images that people have about kind of the, the silliness and, and worthlessness of women who dressed up in these corsets and wore these huge wigs, a la Marie Antoinette, which, which she did. But underneath that wig was one of the great minds of her time and one of the great free thinkers and free livers and free lovers and, and all of that of her time. And, and I just, I wanted to honor her and, um, and uh, it, particularly because I thought it was just horrible that people didn't even know that she had ever lived. So I'm really inspired by that, the idea of, of taking women that people really ought to have heard of or really ought to have thought about uh, about, and then giving an imagined story about them to the world. And Penelope's daughter? Penelope's daughter. Actually, Penelope's daughter came out of a, of a conversation I had with my late husband once. Uh, after I wrote, uh, uh, after I wrote the Four Seasons, or late, late just before the Four Seasons was going to its final form before it went to print, we went to Venice and uh, to research it because that's where it takes place. And uh, and we went in January. It was really wonderful. I wanted to go in the off season because you know, of course, your characters are there year round. So I wanted to know what it was like. And when we came back, we were just sitting at the dinner table and he said, why don't you write another novel about a place I really want to go? And, and I said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, well, I've never been to Greece. And so I thought, I said, well, you know, the first thing, of course, I think that was Pop to anybody's mind in, in writing about Greece would be Homer, the, the Homeric era. And and I said, well, you know, I can't really write about that because Penelope is just the most boring person in literature. All she does is sit around and cry and say that she misses her husband and and whines about the suitors and, and, and she's just not interesting. And, and so I thought that's kind of the end of that. And then I, I remember at the table saying, well, what about if Penelope had a daughter? What about if there's a daughter in the story that we've never heard of heard of? How about if when Odysseus goes off to the Trojan War, Penelope's pregnant with a daughter and and neither of them even know this yet. And my, my late husband said he was a, he loved Homer and he just said he got a big glowering look on his face and said, "You can't mess with Homer." <laughs> and of course, as a of course everybody any any female knows the minute that somebody says something like that, what are we obligated to do? And so I thought, well, I almost those were fighting words I I had to mess with Homer then and uh, and so I thought about it and then I realized how do we know that they didn't have a daughter because this is a story that was in the oral tradition for hundreds of years before it was written down. And because it was in an oral tradition that was conveyed by bards to all male audiences, that anything that wasn't of interest to the male audience would have been weeded out in the interest of focusing on the things they wanted to hear about. So if they did have a daughter, that daughter would have been of no interest, most likely. And so she would have fallen out of the story. So looking at at Homer's Odyssey, it, it really just broke open for me when I had that realization because I saw that the only women that are still in the story by the time Homer writes it down are the ones that um, that are are um, in, of interest to the men are involved in the men's story. So Helen, of course, is in it because she caused all the trouble for the men. And then Penelope is in the story, not really in her own right so much, is because but that the fact that she is Odysseus's property. She's really considered to be part of his land, and that we you have these men who are back home messing with something that is Odysseus's. And so the story really, I think, the way it would have felt to the people who are listening to it would be, is Odysseus gonna get home in time to claim what is his? And and that's really what the story is all about. Can this woman hold out long enough for Odysseus to retain his property? I don't think that they were really interested in Penelope as a fleshed out heroine. And you look at it, and she's not because homer is is singularly only interested in having her cry over her husband and sleep a lot and and weave and whine all the time about these suitors. she's not interesting, but when I started thinking about her and her daughter as the center of the story, I thought Penelope is really truly a heroine that has been completely unsung because she would have been a child bride she was uh, absolutely we know that Helen was married when she was twelve, and so let's say even that Penelope was married when she was 14. She would have gone to this rocky island with a man who's probably twice her age, away from everybody in her family. She's there only long enough to have a baby boy um, who's like one, one year old at the time Odysseus leaves. So let's say she's 15 or 16 when he leaves. And then he's gone for the next 20 years. And when he comes back, she's still queen. She hasn't lost it. She has ruled that kingdom um, from the time she was a young teenager who barely knew her husband. You know, and so I'm not buying this that she just cried and talked about how much she missed him all the time. I think she was out there doing what needed to be done and and um, surviving by her wits and intelligence and raising her child or children in the case of of my book and and doing a, a bang up job of her life. And so I wanted to. Reintroduce Penelope as a character to the world. And I, I also wanted to write about a middle-aged Helen of Troy because she would have been middle-aged by the time the Odyssey takes place. And, and, and I thought, what would a middle-aged Helen of Troy be like? And I thought, I bet she'd be totally awesome. So I wrote this awesome Helen of Troy and this heroic Penelope. And, um, within the context of the story of a, of a baby girl who, because he's gone 19 years, has time to grow to be 18 years old without ever seeing her father. So that was my idea, and that one is is to sort of rethink Penelope for modern times and and rethink the stories of the women who were left behind, whose stories never got told by by the bards. So that was the goal of that one.
0: Oh, I love that. I'm gonna to have to read all summer now. To stick <laughs> Well, be my guest. <laughs> so, uh, this brings us to the mapmaker's daughter, which starts in Spain in 1492, which for those of us here in the United States is the year that Columbus discovered America and Ferdinand and Isabella funded it and they all look wonderful, but you're telling a very different story.
1: Yes, I think um, that Columbus sailing the ocean blue is is only one of the things that happened in 1492. It really is one of the turning points in, in Western history because at the very beginning of the year, actually I think it was on January 2nd, the um, Muslim leader of the Caliphate of Granada, which was right down on the southern coast of, of Iberia and was the last remaining little tiny piece of Muslim-controlled Spain. Uh, they had had all of I- almost all of Iberia for centuries, and then gradually lost land and lost land, and and um, just had this one little piece left. Ferdinand brought an army down and was able to conquer Granada in late 1491, and uh, the keys of the city were handed over to to Ferdinand and Isabella on right right at New Year's, and uh, so the year starts with the fall of Granada, and then within a couple of months, Ferdinand and Isabella have been convinced by Torquemada who's um the the um grand inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition uh, to expel all the Jews from Spain because he's considered them to be a threat to to Christianity in Spain, and that the only solution was to get rid of them altogether. It's too long a story to go into here, but but Ferdinand and Isabella bought into this idea that Jews had no place in in their kingdom. And so they issued an order of expulsion. And all, all the Jews in Spain had to be gone by, I think it was the first of August um, of the same year. So the Jews had actually been there since um, since the, the second century of the Common Era. Um, they came right after the expulsion of the Jews in the Roman Empire. So they had actually been the first group of the big religious groups, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, to be there because they'd been in Spain longer than Spain had been Christian, because the Romans were still pagans at the time they came. So the Jewish history was the longest of all of them, and in this just this one edict with their one signature, they said that the Jews had to go and I thought, you know, people really need to know this. I know even a lot of Jews do not know that the Jews were expelled from Spain. And and so I thought this is one of the real great tragedies of history, and it's just such an important piece of understanding Jewish history, not just for Jews, but for everyone. Um, and, and I just thought this, this story really needs to be told. And of course, because I, I always write about women, I knew that it would have to be told from the point of view of the women. So I came up with this idea of having a woman who's the matriarch of of a real-life Jewish family, the Abravanel family, um, her narrating her life, which would kind of also give the reader an idea of what it was like to be Jewish in those last generations before the expulsion, and then what the expulsion was like for the the Jews who were subject to it.
0: And this woman is Amalia, who prefers (laughs) herself to be known as Amalia because her Hebrew name is Leah.
1: Yeah, so she, that's kind of her secret pronunciation of her name, yeah. Right, and she is
0: not only your protagonist, but she's by far the most important uh, character in the, in the book because it, she's telling the story. This is her life story, which reflects yes. the situation. So tell us about her as a character and how she came to you as the, the ideal vehicle for telling this story.
1: Well, I wanted—I think, in a sense that uh, you know—I—I I don't know really how to explain this—but the characters come to you; they—they they just present themselves. And so, I was sort of stuck with her, I guess you could say, in that sense, because she's the one whose story needed to be told, even though I was inventing her. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but oh, no, it um, does; it definitely uh, does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that, that I, the story couldn't have been about anybody else because it was supposed to be about her. But looking back, and, and of course, I invented her, so so you know, I suppose I could have invented someone else, but I don't feel like I could have. Uh, at any rate, I, th- I think looking back at it, that uh, she she represents, she's a kind of a microcosm, and she represents so many different things. She represents the split in this culture between Jews who said, I've had enough, I'm just going to be a Christian now, and converted, and Jews who said, I will never convert. I would rather die. And um, so she lives in both of those worlds. She's she's uh, born into a, what's called a converso family, um, where her father is really trying very hard to be Christian and essentially at one point says, I don't think it really matters what I believe. The only thing that matters is keeping my family safe. And so he uh, becomes—he's Christian—and but the mother simply cannot accept this. The mother believes her Amalia's mother believes that believes in keeping the covenant that the Jews have with God, and so she's secretly practicing Judaism. And Amalia, as a little girl, I think it's probably no more complicated than that. She wants to please her mother in the beginning, so she's going along, and and she's the one who gains favor with her mother by really genuinely participating in these in the, the ceremonies, like secretly lighting. Sabbath candles and and um, and just participating in the charade that they're um, that they are, are are Christians, whereas the the father and the the other her Amalia sisters, her older sister and younger sister, they're just in the beginning. I think they're just going along with with what's with what's easier. And uh, so so it's it it shows I think the difficulty of really trying to thread this needle if you're if you're Jewish if you have any sense of Jewish identity in a culture that's just um, just them uh, knocking you down right and left for for that status. So she represents that split between conversos and the Jews. But the other thing is she's also in a position. I put her in a position to witness everything that is really most exciting about this era. It's exciting in terms of science. It's exciting in terms of global exploration. The map making is is um, is just. Beautiful and wonderful in this period, and it's just one of the great periods of poetry both um, uh both hebrew and 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 muslim poetry and so i I wanted to create a character where I'd be able to pull in everything that I thought was just fabulous about this time and and honor it so i I created her to be a person that could show all of these things to the reader, so a lot of the plot revolves around getting her where she needs to be in order to have the experiences and meet the people that really will bring this era to life for the reader.
0: Yeah, and she goes a lot of places. I mean, as you mentioned, her her father is a mapmaker and her grandfather has been a mapmaker. Yes. And, the, and this is, you know, the era when Spain and Portugal in particular are, are um, all over the globe basically and and she the first move is that her mother dies this is fairly yes. early in the novel and her sister is it's her, it's her, her older sister gets married right right around yes. the, just before the mother dies and then her younger sister is sent to a convent for schooling and so it's yes. it's just amalia and her father and they go to portugal tell us about that yes
1: well, actually, that's, there, that's in there for a, a very specific reason related to me, and that is that I just think Henry the Navigator is really fascinating. And so I thought, okay, I want to write a novel, and I want it to, to have the expulsion of the Jews, and I wanted to have Henry the Navigator in it. And so I went and did, did a historical search and realized that if I wanted to have Henry the Navigator in the same novel that I had the expulsion of the Jews, she was going to have to be very young for the Henry the Navigator part and very old by the standards of her time for or the, the expulsion part. So that's when I came up with the idea of having her be an old woman who's uh, sitting in this empty room in Valencia and Spain on the last day before the Jews have to leave Spain and she's in this empty room except for the chair that she's sitting on and a little trunk that's the only thing that she's taking with her and inside the trunk is this atlas that she's secretly kept that was made by her her grandfather and her great-grandfather who are real map makers by the way and this is a real atlas Um, and and then I thought okay well I'm just going to have her slip back into her memories and tell the story of her life so the book goes back and forth between this really awful sweltering August day, where everything is falling apart for her, and then drifting back into the story of her past. So so she is something like eight years old when she and her father go to the court of Henry the Navigator. And so, I mean, some of the challenges that I have, or one of the big challenges that I had in writing this was figuring out a way to get an eight-year-old girl into the court of Henry the Navigator. And I won't give away how I did that. It's a plot twist that makes that happen, but um, uh, just to get her where I wanted her to be. But it was mostly because is I really think that Henry the Navigator is just such an interesting historical character. So I wanted to, to pull him into the story and that was the way to do it. So it, it, the, the novel could have been different. It could have, it probably... It could have been a different kind of novel in which I picked her up as an adult woman and just carried her through the last the last generations and the time that she's actually in Spain. But I decided to make it a multi generational saga so I could pull in the the bigger picture of of world exploration and this really fascinating historical figure in Henry the Navigator.
0: Well, one of the um, interesting parts of that, even if it wasn't your reason for doing it, um, because I don't know about you, but what I find when I'm writing fiction, things often just seem to happen, and then I find out the reason for them later.
1: Yeah, right. I understand.
0: <laughs> um, but the result of that is that the although there is a... The Christians of, of the late 15th century are not, as a rule, tolerant of Jews, but they seem to be a good deal more relaxed about the whole thing in Portugal than they are in Spain. So there's this interesting contrast. Could you talk about that a little bit, the differing religious environment both there and also in Grenada, which is another place that your story goes, although I won't, Talk specifically about how it gets there.
1: Well, that's that's really probably, if if it came across that way, it's really not a distinction between Portugal and Spain. Portugal was every bit as anti-Semitic. And a lot of the Jews who were expelled went to Portugal. And the things that happened to them in Portugal are horrible. It was beyond it's beyond the scope of my book because my book ends on this particular day in in 1492 um, but uh, that, that is it really was more that there was just there were swings over the course of um, and it, it had a lot to do with who was the king at the time the king or queen at the time that there were just wild swings between how Jews would be treated and with, under one ruler they would be treated tolerantly under another they would be cracked down on and um, the, the, the reasons for that are, are you know scholars go. Into this, it really has to do um, largely not really with the Jews themselves, but with pleasing either the nobles or the or the populace in general. And usually, you could score a few points with an angry public by cracking down on the Jews because of the deep-seated anti-Semitism in society. And so, so it's um, really more that there was a period of tolerance towards Jews. Uh, Probably everywhere, I guess I guess in both probably Portugal and Spain at that point, point. and then there wasn't any more because of of um, uh, just various political machinations that caused their lives to become untenable in in the case of their leaving Portugal, it was partly because they were Jewish, but largely because Isaac abravanel had been um wrongly uh um linked to a plot against the king. It's really highly unlikely scholars don't know, but it's highly unlikely he would have done anything that risky but um Uh, So it's not all about who was more anti-Semitic than anyone else. They were both deeply anti-Semitic, but sometimes it was in their political best interest to be tolerant. And then sometimes it wasn't.
0: I'm glad you clarified that, actually. I, as you're talking, I realized that I had somewhat misstated it because it's it's during her childhood under Henry the Navigator that the atmosphere seems to be more tolerant. But it's true that yes. they do leave the Portugal precisely because of this, this incident which comes about when, when Henry the Navigator dies and there is a new king.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So I don't want to give Portugal, the in, in you know, it's like I don't really want to give them a benefit of the doubt vis-a-vis Spain in this regard. It was just a very deeply anti Semitic time. But it also was a time that because of the Muslims, and this is way before the book, but when the Muslims uh, conquered the Iberian Peninsula, <clears throat> they brought a policy of tolerance towards Christian towards Christians and Jews with them. It's it's a very interesting and unknown part of Muslim history that of, of the, the Christian the Jews were way better off under the Muslims than they were under the Christians because the Muslims believed that anybody it was called they called them Dimi or people of the book. They 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 thought that any Anybody who believed in the God of the of the Bible uh, should be permitted to worship that God, however they wished. And um, though they believed that there was one true faith, Islam. And it was their goal that in time people would come to understand their way of seeing things. They felt that uh, you had to pay a tax if you wanted to be a Christian or a Jew, but you were completely unimpeded in your worship for centuries in, in the Iberian Peninsula while it was ruled by the Muslims. And then in this reconquest where the Christians are pushing back down, they're bringing both their own intolerance towards Jews and, and towards Muslims as well. But they're bringing it into a culture that has clearly benefited from tolerance of a other people. So when they when these kings first start in, in like say the twelve hundreds or so when the Christians are reconquering most of Spain. Their 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 kings are still saying, I want to have Jews and Muslims at court because they're very smart and because they're very educated and because they make money that I can borrow. And, uh, and they're just good to have around, even though I think they're going to hell and even, you know, all of these things. And so it was a, a weird thing where they really despised Jews, but at the same time, they did tolerate them. And then it was just with Ferdinand and Isabella. This kind of where this this um, uh, this sea change happens as a result, largely of the influence of Torquemada, who gave them the idea that that Jews were the big problem, and the solution for Spain was to get rid of its religious diversity.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, and and it's you're right because the political climate now is so um, charged with uh, Islamic fundamentalism. You. People have generally forgotten, and because that was true not only in in um, Andalusia but also throughout the Arab world and throughout right. the in all of Central Asia. I mean, up into Russia, it's uh, this this interchange between. I mean, it's true that Christians and Jews were taxed; they were subjected to a special tax. But they, you know, you had Jewish physicians and you had uh, Christian right. physicians mm-hmm. and scholars, and all, you yeah. know, there was much more interchange and much more acceptance than there was in the Christian world. I there,
1: there was. And, and I want I to say one thing just in case anybody's listening who, who might take issue with this. Is it was more than they were taxed. There, there were other things they couldn't do. There were, you know, there, there, there synagogues and, and mosques. Actually they couldn't build mosques at all, but the synagogues couldn't be bigger than the churches and, and there were, were certain limitations on what they were able to do. There, sometimes they were, like say, not permitted to carry weapons or, or things like that. So it wasn't like they were equal, but it was definitely like they were tolerated, and their lives were way better mm-hmm. in Iberia than they would have been anywhere else in in Europe. So yeah, and I think that one of my one of my missions in writing this book, although it isn't really part of of the book except tangentially through the the Muslim characters who were in it, is to is to let people know, you know there was a time, there was a time and it lasted for hundreds of years where Jews, Christians, and Muslims put put differences aside for the the larger good. And, uh, and that, you know, obviously everybody in the world is, is wondering what is going to happen with this, this, sudden, um, growth of religious intolerance and, you know, what, what does that bode for all of our futures? And, and, um, and I think it's important for people to know that, that, uh, that for, for what better or worse in regard for, to today, that the leaders in this religious tolerance were the Muslims. Yeah. And, and people need to know that that's also part of Islamic history. It's not just what we know today and the problems that we have with fundamental Islamists today, but that is not the whole story. And it's, it's not even the, the, the reading of what Muslims are supposed to do vis-a-vis, um, Jews and, and Christians that, that most Muslims accept. So, you know, I think the idea that there was a time of tolerance and the idea that, that it was um, uh, brought into being by the Muslims is something that really ought to be part of everybody's education. I mean, it's part of being a global citizen is knowing the full picture of, of people's pasts.
0: No, I agree absolutely in fact my main series looks at um, the relationship between the uh, Orthodox Russians and the Muslim Tatars who were their neighbors oh wow
1: yeah that that would be very interesting
0: and it's a very similar situation I mean there's there's clear prejudice uh, especially on the Russian side and yet um, they're dealing with people who at the time that I'm writing about are their political and military Equals or even and have a history of being their superiors, and so yes. they don't dare. Um, they're in the process of ramping up to conquer these people, and so there is this sort of you know religious drumbeat in the background that 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 they need to do this. But in actual everyday life, they will take Muslims into their service. They have an you know independent Muslim principalities within this Orthodox state, and. They, right. you know, they have a Quran in the Kremlin that they use for when the Tatars send their diplomats. Um, yeah. but they, you know, but according- and, and this long diplomatic correspondence. It's all it, it, there's a kind of pragmatic. We're all we all have to get along because we don't very have
1: very pragmatic. Yes, and part of that pragmatism is that if there's a, a, a something to be gained by playing the religious intolerance card, they will play it. Right. Yeah. So nobody's ever really safe. And right. I think that was what was kind of just must have been so schizophrenic about being Jewish in this time is that you were never safe. You could never relax even when you're being tolerated or even encouraged to be part of, of court life. You, you know, you're just, um, you know, one seems like you're just probably always one step away from it, just turning on you utterly and so uh yeah it must have been just really really difficult
0: and much worse i think for the jews because they didn't have an independent state so I mean, right yeah but there the, wasn't really right there wasn't really a place that they could go i mean the whole what part of the at least this is my reading the part of the tension around the expulsion is that they don't know Who's going to take them in if they leave?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 they didn't. Even the Abravanel family, who's the most powerful family in in, uh, in in the the Jewish diaspora from here, they didn't know where they were going to go. They they knew they were heading to Italy, and they were assuming because the they had so many friends that that in these different places that one city or another would take them in. But even they didn't have an easy time finding a place to stay. They were turned away. Um, I can't recall where it was, but they were turned away from the first couple of places that they that they tried to, to go to and then ended up in Naples and then um, spread from there to Venice and Corfu and, and, and other places. But it wasn't easy even for the rich ones and the, the, the well-known ones and well-connected ones. So you can imagine that the general ones, it must have been probably very much like the, the attitude that we see towards these um, immigrant children coming across the border today. There's just probably a... Um a great deal of intolerance towards them,
0: yes, I would imagine so i mean and you know, it's not only them but you know guest workers in various places and so mm-hmm. on i mean it's mm-hmm. people are willing to put up with few, but when you start talking about hundreds of thousands they they begin right. to get worried about you know how that's going to affect their own lives.
1: And then, of course, in Christian Europe, you have the added element that, that Christians in this time viewed the Jews as the killers of Christ. And so, why in the world would they want to allow the killers of Christ to live among them?
0: Mm-hmm. Now, these are the Sephardim. Do I have that right? I mean, the, yes. they are the origin of the Sephardic Jews.
1: Yes, yes. Sephiroth was their was their name for Iberia. Uh huh. So, how do you research this novel? <laughs> Uh, I I, I think I might research a little differently than most historical novelists do. When I decide that I'm going to write a book, I, I think just kind of fundamentally that historical fiction is not different from any other kind of fiction in a couple of regards, and that is that it's going to rise and fall on the same things. It's going to rise and fall on the strength of its characters. It's going to rise and fall on the compelling nature of the story. And it's going to rise and fall on how well it's written. And so, first and foremost, first, second, and third, you've got to have great characters, you've got to have a good story, and you've got to write it well. And the history, that that's the cake, and the history is kind of the frosting, in, in a sense. And so, what I do, and I'm not sure whether this is what anybody else does, is, is I, I research it thoroughly enough to really feel like I, I understand the era, to, to know the era. I'll read um, histories of the era, and then I read biographies of everybody who's a real person who, who lived in that era, and then I read anything else I can find. That I think might be um, immediately enriching to the plot, as I'm, because I'm still in the process of shaping the plot. And you use the sources that you have. If you can't find information about something, you can't make it part of the story. Sometimes you find information about something you didn't expect to, and then that becomes a huge part of the story. And just because you've got the information about it. And so I, I, I read enough to shape the story in broad brush, and uh, and then I, I think about my main character, and then I think about. But who else needs to be in this story for me to talk about the things I want to talk about? And, and I decided she needs to have a father and a mother and these sisters. And she needs to have this husband and she needs to have this lover. And, and in order for me to have the story be what I want it to be. And then when I just have this broad brush brush picture, I just start writing. And, um, the first draft is terrible. Um, the first draft, I don't worry about the first draft. I'm just trying to get the story down. And, uh, and then I go back and I, I enrich the history and, and do, I research as I go. And, uh, and that, that just works for me. It, it, um, uh, I, when I, when I try to do too much research in advance, I get really too involved in, Making sure the research is in the story. You know um, how how to explain this. That, no, no, like, I, know I know exactly. If yeah. I know something, I want it to be in the story. And and I've realized that that's not the way to go. It's that that I, I know a whole lot of things that I didn't manage to get into this book, just because I couldn't figure out how to do it. And and I don't worry about that anymore. It's the story. It's it's Amalia's story, first, second, and third. And then I I weave the history into it in the richest texture that I can. Um, that really goes with the story and and no further, so I would say that i i don 't over research anymore I used to over research and then as i 'm writing i'm I'm on Google probably twenty times a day, just looking up little details, you know things like um, it, if somebody's getting in and out of a dress, for example, then I need to know what the dress style was like. I need to know whether it laced or hooked. I need to know what fabric it would have been. I need to know like, you know, all that sort of thing. But I didn't need to know that until that moment. And so I don't worry about it. Or or if, say, for instance, she's in a particular year of her life, I'll I'll go back and I'll research the things that happened that year, just to make sure that I don't not realize that, Somebody important died or, you know, the the plague swept through or or something like that so that I have it I have it uh, adequately placed in time. So I'm constantly doing little tiny bits of research until the book is entirely done. But I really just do the broad brush of it first.
0: That makes a lot of sense, because that is the curse of historical fiction. And I work very hard to avoid that, too. But I've, you know, even as a historian, I will not read historical fiction that stops the plot cold for 20 pages to tell me the details of, I don't know what, preparing ham, you know. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Susan Susan Vreeland, who is, of course, one of the the great historical novelists with her art-based fiction, she calls this a research dump. And you have to avoid research dumps at all costs. And so I've trained myself not to research dump. If I can't figure out a way to make something come gracefully into the story, it's just not in it. And if it's really important to me, I put it in the afterword.
0: Yeah, right. The historical note is like a catch-all for all this
1: stuff. Exactly. It's it's where we say the little things we fudged about and all the things we're just really, everybody just has to know. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned some of the other characters besides Amalia. Um, Are there any that you would like to talk about? I I don't want to force you to go further into the plot than you're comfortable with. So I'm going to let you tell me. You mentioned the Abravanel family a couple of times, for example. Did you want to talk about them and their role in uh, Amalia's life?
1: Well, actually, one of my goals was to tell the story of the Abravanel family because I just admire um, their family so much. I admire, um, Judah and, and Isaac Abravanel who led the, the Jews and just by their, their, um, dignity and, and their example got the Jewish people through this, this, um, difficult time and tragic time and to significant degree. But I I knew the book couldn't be about them because I'm just not interested in having my main character be a man. I I really do I mean, I, I love men, but I I don't want to write their story. I want to write women's stories. And um, and so I thought, okay, it's gonna to have to be about the women of the Abravanel family and and I couldn't find really anything about them. And I actually found it very inspiring and, and very motivating to me that there's um there's there's a biography of Isaac Abravanel and um and there's you know, he's he's mentioned a lot. And Judah, the one who's the, the 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 younger one who's the the father of the little baby who figures at the end of the story, um, uh, he became a a great Jewish philosopher of of his time. But um, this biography of Isaac Abravanel says that, that, um, that Abravanel once wrote that he would not have been able to do all of the things that he did if he didn't have such a competent wife. And I thought that was totally cool because, you know, so many times in history people don't even you know, the wife is just anonymous in the background and they don't even think to mention them. And the fact that he mentioned her I thought was really cool. But he never said her name. And so we've got this this person that Isaac Abravanel himself is willing to say was his strength. And and he's the strong one that leads that leads people, um, out of, of um out of, of Spain at this time. And so we've got this really obviously very important woman, and we don't even know her name. And, and then this, this, this biography goes on to say he had three sons, and he might have had a daughter. <laughs> and just that might have had a daughter, is if there's just something about this that just got in my craw that you can't be a whole lot more anonymous than that. You can be more anonymous because you can have people not even know that there might have been a daughter, but you can't get much more anonymous than that. And I thought, okay, so he definitely had a wife, so she's real. And let's say that he probably did have a daughter, so she's real. And I thought, what are their stories? And they've got to have a story because they're real. Everybody who's ever lived has a story. And, and so I thought, well, in the absence of, of any facts, I'm just going to have to research everything that I can about about uh, Sephardic women in this era, about life in this era, about medieval women in general. And when I'm confident that I can imagine with some degree of integrity and accuracy what their lives might have been like, I'm just going to make them up. And because I think that the only other choice is to allow them to, to die you know to to never think about them at all to say it's perfectly okay that we don't know her name and it's perfectly okay that we don't know if he had a daughter well it's not okay with me and and so i so you know essentially i'm trying to recreate history even if i have to make it up and uh and uh that that might sound odd but really it's the only kind of 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 the only way we're going to have it and I, I would contend that you can tell a true story even if you have to invent it which sounds kind of kind of odd but uh but it's i think it's more truthful to invent a story that does have at least historical integrity i think that's more truthful than to pretend that there wasn't a story at all
0: so what would you like readers to take away from the mapmaker's daughter
1: Um, I think that I I touched on on one thing and that is I think it's really a story for our time because we worry about our fate. You know, we're once again faced with um, the possibility of really maybe not annihilation but really serious damage to our world as a result of religious intolerance. And and I think that that there is a message in this book that uh, about what the cost of that is. And I didn't, you know, the book doesn't go back far enough in time to let people know about this great period of tolerance that that was um, that was part of of medieval Liberia. But um, it it really it's a story about what happens when you decide not to value diversity. And a, a message certainly of the book is that diversity is better, and diversity is better even when it's hard. Yeah, diversity does create difficulties in our ease from time to time, but it's better to have everybody in the story. And because religious intolerance um, uh, will lead to destruction of, of great cultures, as it did here. Spain never recovered. Um, it's, you know, it's really the, the equivalent of 20th century, the Nazis saying we don't need to know anything more about Einstein except that he's a Jew. Right? You know, are you really willing to sacrifice people like that? And, um, and and this is what happened when Ferdinand and Isabella were willing to do that. Spain never recovered. As a matter of fact, Spain is actually offering repatriation to Sephardic Jews who can prove that their ancestors were expelled. Is it <laughs> really? Yes. And you've got to figure it's got to be connected to the fact that their economy is in the tank. And maybe they re- maybe they're thinking it would be better to have a little more diversity. Well, that would be good if so. So, do you? Have- not, I don't think the Jews are flocking to take them up on the offer. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <But laughs> it's still- would be a way to get a European Union passport, but other than that,
0: what an encouraging sign,
1: though.
0: So, do you yeah. have a new novel in the works?
1: Um, I'm not actually working on anything now. I finished I uh, finished novel number five. Uh, my my late husband died about two years ago of, of prostate cancer, and I was just finishing up this novel when when he got in the final stages of his sickness. So I just I set it aside and just thought I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal with this. I have this wonderful beautiful man right here, and I'm not gonna go off into a fantasy world of people that I've made up while I still have him with me. And then I found that as part of my healing, that I really didn't want to do anything that was like picking up the way things used to be. I really wanted to reinvent myself. And I found that I really um, was liking taking the break from writing. And so I'm, I'm not actually working on anything right now. I retired recently as well. And a lot of people were saying, Oh, good, that'll give you lots more time for your writing. And I, and I started feeling kind of oppressed by that, that, no, I'm trying to reinvent myself now. And I don't know who I'm going to be in the future. So I don't know what my writing future holds. I only know that I love to write and I love To write fiction. But I'm not sure if I'm going to continue in the vein of historical fiction. I'm kind of thinking that another thing that bugs me is that um, I'm 64, and uh, something that bugs me is that there really are not that many people writing about how rich and interesting our lives are when we're this age. And so I can read a lot about younger people and all that, but I, I'm thinking that there might be um, some a, a niche there to write some, some contemporary novels about women who are facing the kinds of things we face at my age. We have grown children who are still a worry to us. We have retirement. We have um, lo- a lot of loss. We're starting to lose people. Um, we're starting to lose some of our own sense of ourselves as we get a little less strong and um, maybe a little less sharp and, and, and all that. And so I'm thinking that there, there may be stories in there and I also think I'd really kind of like to lighten up and, and write books that have a little more humor in them than, than the ones that I've written. So I think you'll be hearing from me again, but I, I don't know it, what it's going to be. I don't know if it, I may dust off the, the novel that I, that I had finished and, and and then again, I may not and I don't know right now I'm not writing anything, but I suspect it's in my future, in the not-too-distant future.
0: Well, I wish you all the best, and thank you so much for talking uh, with me today. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for giving me an audience. Sure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Laurel Corona author of The Mapmaker's Daughter. You can find out more about her at www.laurelcorona.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-C-O-R-O-N-A as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.